Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Silas Carson, who played different characters across all of the Star Wars prequels, especially known, though, for his iconic portrayals of Jedi Master Kaidi Mundi and Trade Federation leader Newt Gunray. Listen closely to when he starts doing voices of these characters and figure out if you can hear me have a minor freakout. But in any case, this is Talking Bay 94, Episode 75, The Great Silas Carson. Uh, well, Mr. Carson, again, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking. It really is a huge honor. And even before Star Wars, I'd love to just dive in first with what like initially inspired you. What made you want to become an actor in the first place? Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's a funny question, because uh, I think a lot of people who are actors say I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid or, you know, I started acting when I was a child or, you know, it was always in my head to do this. And that wasn't the case for me at all. It was not on my radar at all. I hadn't even thought about this kind of thing. And um, in the 70s, I was at a public school in England. And in the sixth form, they always used to do a school musical every summer and a play in the winter. And that would mean that you had to rehearse for two hours on a Thursday afternoon. My lesson at the time was double history and I wasn't enjoying it. So I decided I was going <laughs> to like audition. This is absolutely true. I was just going to audition so that I could like, you know, get off that double lesson. And so I auditioned for a, just a small part in the chorus mm-hmm. of Guys and Dolls. And, uh, and when they put up the, the list, I saw that I had, uh, they given me the part of Sky Masterson, who's you know, yeah, who's who's the lead. The only <laughs> role I I share with Marlon Brando, I'm very happy. That's great. So I went on stage at the age of 16, 17, and you know, for the, I just was like, wow, I love this. Yeah, I absolutely love this. And from there on in, I was determined to go to drama school, mm-hmm. uh, and I just completely changed direction from where I was heading. I did a lot of plays at school in the last kind of, you know, four terms that I was there, set up my own little theater company when I left and then ended up going to drama school. But the funny thing is that my mum said to me years later, not very long ago, actually, she said that when I was four years old, apparently I was showing off in front of the family. And, uh, and when I kind of, I was like, I used to do silly voices and impersonations and stuff. And then when I went off out of the room, my dad turned to my mum and said, he's going to be an actor. And my mum said, really? What makes you think that? And he just went, I just know. That's I just crazy. know. But they never told me that story till years later. You know? My dad <laughs> said, oh, I knew you were going to be an actor. He didn't just. So it kind of it just fell upon me, really. Mm-hmm. And then it just became a passion. And I'm still here. <laughs> no, incredible. And I mean, I'd love to dive further into, you know, your training at the Drama Center, Royal Shakespeare mm-hmm. Company, all of those early experiences that you had as an actor. How did that mm-hmm. kind of train you and teach you kind of your your steps as you progress through your career? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, systems change as you go along and education systems change. And the school that I went to, the drama center, was a very specific kind of school. Uh, I, I arrived there in uh, 85, 1985. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, at the time, it was considered to be a very um, maverick method school they taught method acting basically but you know this kind of wide range of methodologies the 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 kind of main stay of it was a movement psychology training which was which was devised by one of the people who ran the school a guy called yat malmgren 
So it's it's kind of um, origins were European theatre. Mm-hmm. You know, Stanislavski and Grotowski and Achto and those kinds of right. teachers and thinkers. So it was a very theatrical school. It was very methodological. And at the time that I was there, it was brilliant, brilliant school. But, you know, it didn't really serve you all that well for going into the profession as such. Mm-hmm. We didn't learn a lot about how to be an actor, about, you know, how to kind of like do auditions, how to, you know, um, find agents, all that kind of stuff. But the, the methodology I absolutely loved. And it set me up for, for life, really, because what they did teach at the drama center is how to work on your own. You know, very often you'll find yourself in a position, especially doing films, where you might do the initial read through and then you don't see anybody else until you're coming in and doing your scenes. Mm-hmm. And there's very little rehearsal. There's very little analysis. You know, obviously, if you're doing theater, that you have a rehearsal time. But uh, but it taught me how to do all of that work on on my own. You know, it taught me I have a very strong discipline in, um, you know, research and building character before I arrive at something. I mean, I I love that you talked about movement and kind of channeling that in your performance, because as we progress now into talking about the prequels, the Mm -hmm. the work that you had to do, especially under costume or under animatronic, really then carried through. And let's dive, I guess, into how you got connected with Robin Gerland, for instance, and let's say Rick McCallum. How did you get connected with that prequel team? And what was that first audition process like? I, 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 I grew up in this very sleepy town called Eastbourne in the south of England uh, in the 70s. And, um, and school was very busy for me. It was a good public school I was at. So I had lots of extracurricular activity. So going to the cinema was not something I did. There was one cinema in town. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's just not something I did. And so the Star Wars films completely passed me by. <laughs> I had heard of them, but I never saw them. Right. And I didn't see them all the way up until adulthood. Uh-huh. In fact, until the day that I got a, a phone call from my agent, who said, oh, you know, so I've got you an audition for Star Wars. And I went, what? That's, somebody's already used that title. And he went, right. no, 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 Silas, they're making some, some new Star Wars films. And I went, who and why? <laughs> he said, my God, do you not know about this? I said, I don't even know about the originals. Right. Okay, look, so this is the deal. You go, you go and meet this person called Robin Gerland. She's attached to the director, whose name is, is, is George Lucas. And I went, oh, thank you. I'd never heard of George. <laughs> <laughs> this is so embarrassing. She goes, you go along and meet, her, meet uh, this woman, Robin Gerland, and then they'll take it from there. And I went, okay. So um, I turn up to this hotel in Soho, and, uh, and Robin has a camera set up in, in her you know, suite. And I sit on the sofa, and, and she starts the camera up, and and she said to me, so, um, so Star Wars, you've heard of Star Wars, obviously. And I just went, no. <laughs> and she thought I was joking. She thought I was, you know, pulling a bad prank. And she looked at me and she went, okay, let's not mess about, Silas. This is serious here. Now you, so you know all about it. And I went, no, Robin, I'm not messing about it. I don't know about Star Wars. You'll have to tell me. I know nothing about these films. Right. And she was like, really? And I told her, I said, yeah, I grew up. I didn't see them. And, you know, so... Tell right. me about them. So she kind of <laughs> scrabbles through the stories. Right. You know, and, and then um, she said to me, well, look, you know, um, we're kind of at the end of casting now. We have, a, we have a bunch of little roles, you know, that we're looking for people for. And your agent put you up for this and you sounded interesting. So we have this little pilot role. It turns out that that small role didn't actually make it to the screen. But during this interview, because I had, you know, said, oh, I, I know nothing about it. And then 
It was in the days when people were allowed to smoke indoors. And I'm not a smoker. And Robin was smoking and she got out a cigarette. She was just about to light it. She goes, you don't mind if I smoke, do you? And I went, no, not at all. And she went, would you like one? I said, no, thanks. No, I don't smoke. And she went, oh, oh, sorry. And she put it back in the, in the box. And I went, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm not going to smoke in front of you. And I said, why not? She goes, no, 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 no. That, that'd be rude. And I went, that's very American of you. I said, you know, we don't care. I said, we really don't care over here. You can smoke in front of me. She was like, no. And I was like, please, don't, don't, just smoke, you know. <laughs> anyway, the interview just kind of carried on like that. So she had shown this interview to George. Mm -hmm. And I, I have it on good authority that George liked the interview because he wasn't dealing with somebody who was like, oh, my God, Star Wars, get me into right. the film. Right. You know, um, <laughs> so anyway, so there was this little pilot role which never made it, but uh, she called back sometime later and she said, look, you know, things have switched around a bit. There's a couple of other things, but George does want to do um, some testing mm -hmm. for a couple of scenes, you know, when you're, when you're kind of, when you're putting a film together, often you need to just work out camera angles and, and uh, so on and so forth, and you need some, some bodies. So uh, I went in there and uh, there were three of us, Mark Warren, myself and Jerome Blake. Mark Warren's a you know, very famous actor. And Jerome, of course, you know. Uh, and the three of us kind of sat in this, uh, it was the Jar Jar Binks and Obi-Wan are in this pod that goes underneath the, the water. Right. We, we played these characters and they did all the, fam you know, the, the kind of camera angles, they worked out all that stuff. And, Robin had said to me, like, if you come in and you kind of do this, you'll get to meet George and he's already seen your interview and, you know, we'll see what happens from there on in. So I went in and did this day and we met, we had a good right. time together. And then she calls back about a week later and said, this other small role has come up for the pilot, which ended up being Lieutenant Williams. Couple of right. lines, right. you know, would you like to do that? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. You know, she said, it's a couple of days on set. I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. But then when I was on set and walking around with her, she and I, by, by now had struck up something of a friendship. Uh -huh. You know, she'd seen me a few times, she was calling me, you know, and, uh, and she could see that I was willing to right. try things out. We went to the, um, we were looking around the model shop. She said, do you want to come and see the model shop after, after lunch? I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I went into this hallowed ground, you know, right. there's, a, there's a very particular smell when you go to these model shops of, of glue and prosthetic uh -huh. foam, you know, and this, this, the, the air was thick with this smell. And I was looking around and I saw the, the, the model, which would become the prototype for the head of Kiadi Mundi. Mm -hmm. I said to her, wow, this is, this is beautiful. I mean, what an extraordinary piece of, of modeling, you know, and a really amazing kind of face and an amazing character. And she went, oh, okay, that's really interesting. Like, how, how do you see him? And I said, well, he looks like this very, you know, wise kind of um, Native American spirit soul, you know, she goes, well, yeah, he's actually a Jedi master. And so we started chatting and then she looked at me and she went, have you ever done prosthetic work before? And I said, no, I haven't. She said, would you be interested in doing that? Because not a lot of people are, right. you know, she said, people get very claustrophobic. And I went, well, I don't know. I mean, is there a way we can find out? She went, yeah, of course we do a prosthetic test on you, you know? And, and so it kind of, then she said, would you be interested in being inside one of these creatures? Mm -hmm. And I was very straight with her. And I was like, yeah, I would because, <laughs> you know, I've not done this kind of work and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm up for trying anything new. However, the characterization is really in the voice. 
So I'll do it if you allow me to do the voice. Oh, wow. And she said, she said no, 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 no. We don't, we don't do that. We, um, we get other actors to, to voice things. We get people to be inside them. And I was like, so break the rules, you know? <laughs> like I said to her, tomorrow I can bring you a demo tape of all of my voice stuff. Right. And, uh, and I said, if you listen to that, then we'll have a conversation. She went, okay. And it's, so it kind of like, you know, yeah. that was the long, long answer to a, a long process, actually. Right. They, these parts that I played kind of came out of me getting to meet Robin and then get to meet George and hanging around with them a bit, actually, yeah. as they were doing the pre-production. Yeah. That's that's so interesting because then, of course, the characterizations of especially Newt Gunray and Kaida Mundi really come into play because how did it change and evolve as you, then you put the costumes on and the animatronics and the prosthetics? How did you work on the walks and the gesturing and even the mm. voice? How did that all come into play for you? Well, the thing about prosthetics is that you're very much, you, you have all this stuff on you, which sort of blanks you out. The one thing that you have left before you go into the voice recording, I mean, I, I spoke on set, obviously, but they dubbed voices over. The one thing you have left is your physicality, you know. So I thought very much about how to project a character through the body. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, with Kiadi, he's, I imagine him to be very uh, calm, very centered. You know, he's very relaxed, even when he's in battle. Mm -hmm. You know, he's so highly trained that he's a very calm voice. So I made him very, very still. Mm -hmm. You know, he sits in the council and he's very still and he's very relaxed. He's kind of sitting back cross-legged. You know, when he moves, he kind of almost glides. And then with Newt, which is, you know, um, it was a very heavy backpack right. on, on my back that contained all of the batteries and the, and the kind of the engines for the animatronics on, on the mask. And the mask is, is something that goes over the entire head. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very hard to see. It's very hard to hear. We had microphones, um, you know, on us and, and earphones in our ears to be able to, you know, hear what was going on around us and to be able to interact. Right. But all of that really closes down on you. So um, I used that backpack, which gave him a kind of um, hunched shoulder look. And I, and I thought about the character, thought he's this very, you know, slimy kind of um, ass kisser, really, right. you know, of a viceroy. And, uh, and so I started to kind of develop the hands that, you know, constantly he's sort of holding on to himself and he's right. ingratiating himself all of the time. Right. You know, uh, or or constantly wagging his his finger at people and dismissing people, and you know, so I developed all of those hand movements and and the body and became a kind of a, a hunched character in an exaggerated way to be able to get through these big costumes right. and all of the prosthetics and animatronics. So that was my initial approach. Right. You know, was to kind of physicalize them inside something which really covers you up. Yeah, a very interesting, because then how did it evolve for you at all? Because I know that you recorded all the voice recording was really done at Abbey Road later on, yeah. which I'm sure, sure was I'm sure it was crazy in itself <laughs> recording there. Um, but how did your vocal performance then come into play and kind of using the history that you already had filming with those characters? The thing with Kiadi is that uh, the voice is, is recorded immediately on set mm. because um, the prosthetics just came around my mouth here and then they painted my mouth so you know it was easy for me to speak there was no kind of sense of it being muffled or anything right. 
and very, very easy to hear through the foam, mm -hmm. the prosthetic foam. So, you know, that was much more kind of natural way of being. So, you know, I listened to um, Alec Guinness had this wonderful, wonderful voices as Obi-Wan. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that kind of gentility, you know, that very English uh, voice, but also, you know, the voice of an old man, the voice of somebody who's very kind, mm -hmm. the voice of somebody who's extremely perceptive, doesn't have to project, doesn't have to shout a great deal, mm -hmm. but also somebody who's in power. I mean, if you think about Marlon Brando in The Godfather, let's right. say, there's a perfect example of somebody who has so much power, they don't have to shout. Mm -hmm. They don't have to project. Because whatever they say, people are going to listen. So I wanted to make his voice very soft and calm and, you know, slightly higher than mine. So it has this kind of otherworldly effect to it. You know, so that's how I spoke on the set. I didn't talk to George about it. I was just, I was going to jump in here and do it. Wow, yeah. And, um, yeah, that's how he came about. And then we did record the the voices of uh, the voice of Newt Gunray in post because you couldn't hear anything on set in that garbled, you know, helmet. And yeah, you mentioned that we recorded Abbey Road. That was that was immense for me. Yeah, you cannot imagine what it's like for uh, an English guy to go to Abbey Road and right. get to use the equipment there. It's you know huge, huge. Yeah. And at the time that I went in. The, um, the Phantom Menace, we recorded in one go, all of the stuff in one go. So, oh. you know, over the course of a day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, we had a lunch break. And down in the orchestra room, there's this enormous orchestra room where they can fit a full symphon symphonic orchestra. Right. John Williams was recording that wow. day. Wow. And George said to me on the lunch break, he said, would you like to go downstairs and have a look at, you know, yeah. John Williams and the orchestra recording? And I was like, would I? <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't need, yeah. <laughs> I would. I could yeah. afford my sandwich for that. Right. So that was immense going down there and seeing the orchestra playing and John Williams, you know, a huge, huge, mm -hmm. huge. That voice was pretty much determined by what George wanted. I mean, right. he, he talked about accents. He, he chose a Thai accent because there is something listening to Thai, to Thai people speaking English that sounds almost as though their noses are blocked. It's a, it's a placement of the voice. Mm -hmm. And because the Nemoidians have no noses, you know, he decided this would be quite a good accent, yeah. which has been very, very misinterpreted by people. Sure. But uh, that was the simplicity of it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I thought about various different kind of, you know, actors and their, their kind of tones, different voices, and came up with this, with this voice that is very um, obsequious, you know, and kind of slimy with this tone of a, of a Thai accent. What I wanted to do was go away from Kiadi Mundi. So I really deepened his throat. So he becomes like this, you know, mm -hmm. yes, of course, as you know, a blockade is perfectly legal. So that it was, you know, far away from my natural voice and far away from Kiadi. So that was how I kind of played around. Right. It. That's, that's really interesting. Especially because, I mean, Phantom Menace, you're playing four different characters in that movie, which is immense, you know, just and all four having action figures three years later. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very incredible yeah. feat to be able to differentiate. And I'm sure that was a challenge in itself, having to play four over the course of a certain amount of time. But then moving to Attack of the Clones, 
and really being able to hone in on those two characters and yeah. Kaido Mooney, for instance, being able to fight and train, I'm sure was a whole additional element. Working with Nick Gillard, for instance, what was yeah. that like? And what did you kind of add to the character as you progressed then standing up and, and fighting and, and really? Yeah, it's a good question. And Nick is uh, really, I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, fight coordinator and teacher. But he's also a really lovely man. And um, it's interesting that you kind of talk about the differentiation between the characters. What came into my mind straight away was, you know, the, the answer that I gave you earlier about drama school. When you've been to a theatrical drama school, you know, the kind of stuff that we did was very uh, character driven. So mm -hmm. it was less naturalistic in a filmic way, let's say, than people might be taught at drama school these days. It was very much kind of in the 80s, you know, with this kind of methodology, it was very character actor driven. So we played around a lot. We played around with makeup and we played around with physicality and we, you know, we played around with voices and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And there was very, there was free range for that. That's the kind of training that I brought to differentiating these characters. Right. When I worked with Nick, what Nick is really good at is saying to somebody like, what are your strengths as a person? Mm -hmm. you know, have you fought before? What have you done? What is your body comfortable with? Right. So that you're not stretching yourself out of something that you're not, but you're containing yourself within something you can do. And I said to him, look, I've never done anything like this. I haven't done any big fights. I don't know anything about martial arts or any of that kind of stuff. However, when I was at drama school, I did some stage fighting, you know, some sword fighting. And I've done two jobs on stage where I've had to use a sword. So I have some of those movements. I said, but actually, and I play tennis a lot. Uh, and I said to him, I'm really, really bad at like double-handed shots. Uh -huh. You know, I've got a, I've got a single-handed backhand. And when you sword fight, you use only one hand. So I said, if we can do that, if we can actually have Keadi fight with mostly with one hand, mm -hmm. that would really help me out. And he went, great. Nobody else is doing that. All the Jedi's fight with two hands. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know? So um, given the kind of the fake uh, sabers that, that we used, I had to, there was a lot of strength in the wrist needed. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, it means that he stands aside a little bit because he does most of his fighting with one hand, you know, which right. is kind of, kind of unusual. So we just brought a lot of the movements um, that, that kind of I knew of into play, right. you know. And, and, of course, he taught me stuff and, and put stuff on top of that. But a lot of the time, Nick just gives you free reign. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just like, do, do what feels right to you and we'll play around with that. You talking about Nick Gillard in that way is so reaffirming because I was able to speak with him probably a year and a half ago. And it, it's he's such a monumental part of these movies, especially the prequels, yeah. differentiating, we keep using that word, but from the original trilogy, especially and making it a lot more physical and a lot more refined at the same time. And I think Coyote is a great example of kind of bringing that that balance of what we were used to in the original trilogy and then the, the modern sword fighting that really happened in the prequels. Yes. So. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, he's just, he's very free like that. Yeah. You know, he's a very free operator. Sharing on screen with both of your roles, especially in Attack of the Clones, went from, uh, Frank Oz especially sticks out to me in Phantom Menace and being able to work alongside him, I'm sure it was incredible. But then you have Christopher Lee and Tamir Morrison and Jimmy Smits and being able mm -hmm. to work alongside these actors. I'd be curious, because you mentioned especially like Newt Gunray not being able to see or react how is it working with these 
actors and working with any of your co-stars and then do you have any specific memories of of some of them while you were on set mm. during these movies it was incredible actually i mean now that you reel off the names you know it, yeah, crazy. It, it, it does remind me of you know when i first started doing this you know i would sometimes look around the room and go wow you know sam jackson there's liam neeson and there's ewan mcgregor and there's george lucas and there's frank oz and you know Right. All these people, you kind of you have to kind of pinch yourself sometimes, right. you know. But the thing about uh, doing any job is that when we get onto the set, we are no longer those famous people. Right. We're a, we're a bunch of artists trying to tell a story, and by and large, I would say ninety nine percent of the time, that's how people approach it. You once you get onto a set, you you don't have people you know, behaving as though they own the place or that they're better right. than you. You know, by and large, actors are really good. They understand that we're just a group of people who are trying to put a story together. So it's a great leveler. Yeah. You know, suddenly you're all talking together and you're kind of mixing together. And it's really about, you know, getting to know each other as people because you're you're working together on the same level. Right. And I really found that with, um, with Star Wars, you know, um, just some amazing people that I that I was next to. And they're all you know, just really lovely people. It was slightly different when I was at, when we did Phantom Menace, because we filmed here in London, mm-hmm. just outside of London, leaves them. So in that kind of setting, I'm going back and forth to my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the prosthetics for Chiadi were very, very long right. process. So, you know, I, I would be on set with people and then, you know, I'd be going home. The second two films, of course, we filmed in Australia. Right. So many of us were traveling from other places and then we were all holed up together in a hotel, mm-hmm. which is very different because you're all going back to the same home. Right. So then you see, you see people out of costume and out of prosthetics in the bar, in the restaurants, you know, hanging out with each other. So you get to know each other a little bit more and you've got more downtime in the studio together because, you know, you're not going to rush off back home. You're going to hang out and, and maybe share a car with somebody back to the hotel, that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, so we got to know each other much more. And once you do three films together, you become something of a family. You know? So all of those are great levelers, you know. But uh, Christopher Lee, I mean, just incredible to work alongside him. One of the things I found out about Christopher Lee, which I'm sure lots of people know, but I didn't know at the time, was that he was an opera singer. He had trained an op- as an opera singer and... Um, and he had this incredible voice and he wanted to become an opera singer, but ended up, you know, going into movies and, and become the most prolific movie maker. I think right. he I think he still holds the record for most of the movies, you know, made by any actor. Incredible. But uh, when he told me this, I was like, wow, I had no idea. And he said, oh, Silas. And he, he told me about his love of opera, you know. Uh-huh. And I said, go on then, sing me something. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He just suddenly burst into song on That's set. Great. I love it. And I was like, "Whoa!" This extraordinary bass voice just came uh-huh. booming out. You know. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. I'm sure lots of people, you know, would have known that, but I didn't. You no, know. and you got to hear it for yourself too. I know. I didn't know about the opera. I know he has a heavy metal record. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but he has like a death metal where he is singing, and it's out there. You can find it. It's very cool. <laughs> He was an extraordinary man, yeah. yeah. Very and but very uh, a real gentleman, very kind. Mm-hmm. And he loved the fact that I was as tall as him. You know? <laughs> We're both very very tall characters, and yeah. he loved that. 
That's great. I'm I'm glad that you brought up the family dynamic, especially because you were in all three and kind yeah. of leading now into Revenge of the Sith and both of your characters having death scenes and, and really adding to the gravity of that final, let's say, 30 minutes of the movie. Not only with the death of the characters, but the ending of shooting, I'd love to kind of just end the talk about Star Wars, especially with kind of maybe delving in a little bit more into that dynamic and what you kind of grew and learned throughout the, I mean, that's a almost a full decade of, of shooting these movies um, mm. and that process that you kind of went through with probably the same cast and crew over and over again mm. um, each, each shooting period. Mm. What did I learn from that experience? Um, well, I think actually I learned, I learned a lot of, a lot about humility mm-hmm. from, from George and from the other people who were there. Um, but George especially, I mean, he kind of, you know, he's a very kind and immediate person, mm-hmm. George. You know, if you're standing next to him behind a monitor, he will strike up a conversation with you. He's not somebody who, uh, you know, I mean, given his position mm-hmm. in this world, you could, you know, he could be forgiven for being very, very arrogant or or perhaps looking down his nose at people, but he doesn't. He's absolutely, he's one of the most down-to-earth, incredibly famous people I know. Right. You know, and he engenders that kind of um, atmosphere on set. He brought us all together at the very beginning. The, the very first time that we all met up, I was, we did the read-through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew a couple of people there. I knew Ian McDermott and Oliver Ford Davis from the kind of theater circuit. Right. But otherwise, you know, the people that I was with in the room were, um, you know, were unknown to me as people, but known to me as great luminaries. Mm-hmm. And yet we just sat around this table having a cup of coffee and reading the script and chatting. And it was so genial, yeah. you know. Um, and that was the tone that, that, um, that George set for the whole thing. So, I watched him a lot, actually. I watched the way in which he he interacted with people. And it's quite remarkable to see somebody who is that innovative, Mm -hmm. you know, and that creative, who has brought something extraordinary and massive to the world, still working with great humility, still asking you, what do you think? How would you like to play this? Do you have any ideas? You know, I wrote this scene in a bit of a rush. Do you think it makes sense? What would you like to bring to it? You know, so I learned a lot from his humility. And I learned a lot from um, the the atmosphere that he created. Um, I always try and work in that way. I always, you know, everybody on set is important. Every single person is a member of the team that makes the whole thing work. That's everybody. That's the runners the people who come in and clean the dressing rooms before you come in in the morning, the makeup artists, the, the, the stars, the directors, the producers, you know, the, um, the model makers, everybody is a part of this whole thing. And nobody is bigger or better than anybody else. And I always try and carry that with me when I work. You know, and, and that was a, it was an early lesson for me. Of course, there's a lot of that kind of feeling in theatre. But when you go onto a film set with people who are that big, that famous, that well-known, that well-established, and have that much power in the film industry, to see that atmosphere on a set like that, you know, that was the greatest lesson for me. That's really that's really incredible. And, I mean, we've talked a lot about Star Wars, and I, I would be remiss, you've had such an incredible career since... And there are two that stick out to me, just not to take too much more of your time. 
Um, but first, uh, Doctor Who and the Ood, I think, is such, again, like, you're just doing all these iconic roles. And, like, I would love to talk just a little bit about stepping into another science fiction franchise, delivering an mm-hmm. iconic performance. Was there a difference with Star Wars and with Doctor Who? Or what What did you kind of take and, and give between those two experiences? Yes, there was a big difference, actually, because I just do the voice of the Ood. So I haven't actually ever got to go on set of, you know. Uh, of interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always just, you know, uh, post-recorded uh-huh. and recorded in a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting when it came up because it came on the back of Star Wars. Right. So, you know, I have a I have a voice reel now that includes, obviously, those voices. And, right. And, you know, whatever my agent, you know, puts out to, to people to do, you know, animation voices or video games, that's one of the first things that they'll, that they'll say, you know. Yeah. He's done all these voices on Star Wars. Right. People go, right, okay, got it, you know. <laughs> so I just got a phone call one day, and it was for one episode to go and do um, the Ood, and there were a couple of other alien voices. And they went, well, we, li- we know that you can play around with voices, and you like doing right. silly voices. You know, we, know, we know who you are, and we've got the tape, and so on and so forth. You know, would you like to do this character? And then they showed me, you know, they showed me pictures of the Ood, and I was like, wow, how am I going to voice that, you know? <laughs> right. So we just... Um, we just kind of played around, you know, mm-hmm. with stuff, and and uh, and we landed on this voice, and they went, "Great, let's let's do that." And then, of course, the character continued. Right. You know, so they just kept calling me back. Yeah. And uh, and I do a whole bunch of ouds, and they just throw different effects on them. And sometimes <laughs> I I'll play around with the you know, the scale of of, of my voice, but um, they just keep com- com- coming back. Yeah. I just keep doing them. You know, I'm still. <laughs> I'm still I yeah. still do these recordings um, for Big Finish, which is a production right. company here that does. Yeah, you know. Yeah, the, the audio dramas, yeah. Yeah, the audio dramas. I still do those, and I still turn up every once in a while and do some ouds and, you it's know. Great. But the funny thing is I'd never, because it's always just done in a studio, mm-hmm. I'm not inside the oud, so I've never right. been on I've never met David Tennant mm, until recently. Oh. <laughs> he plays a character in a TV a miniseries. Mm-hmm. This guy was a serial killer mm-hmm. in England, in London, um, Dennis Nilsson in the 70s and 80s. And uh, they've just made this miniseries. Uh, brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. And David plays, and I played one of the investigating, senior investigating officers. Uh-huh. So when we had the recruit for this, which was only at the end of 2019, it uh-huh. was like towards the end of the year, um, beginning of this year, the first thing uh, at, at the read-through, David came straight up and went silent. He said, we've worked together, but we haven't. Because <laughs> we've done so many scenes together, but right. we've never been in the same room doing those scenes. Yeah. You know? And then about two or three weeks after that, I went to the Comic-Con um, convention in wales and david happened to be there and he came up to me in the canteen he was like well we've got to stop meeting like this you know? <laughs> That's so uh, i finally got to meet him although i have worked with his wife on on the uh, on the doctor who series you know mm. the, uh, the, the the stories mm-hmm. so yeah yeah it was lovely doing those voices and i still do them they're still yeah. there <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, the The final part of your filmography I want to talk about, just because it's such a personal favorite of mine, is working with Paul Thomas Anderson ah. for Phantom Thread. Uh, what an incredible film. Uh, I'd love to just talk a little bit about working with that director and that experience. And... Yeah. He's incredible, PTA, isn't he? I mean, it was, a, it was a huge, 
know, it's a huge privilege for me um, just to, 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 to do that. I mean, his, his casting director and, and, and kind of PA, um, Cassandra Calacandis, she, I got a phone call from her. This is, a, this is a, one of those extraordinary stories, happenstances, really, that happens in our careers every once in a while. Years ago, I did, um, I did Macbeth at the Almeida Theatre in London. And uh, there's a, there was a young actor in it called Tom Mackay, um, who's just brilliant, brilliant actor. He had been um, auditioning for, um, for the role of the doctor mm -hmm. in Phantom Thread. And he got very close to it. And in the end, they went with one of the Gleason boys. Um, but he had gotten to know um, Cassandra really quite well during that time, because I think he went back and auditioned four or five times. Because... Mm -hmm. Paul likes to um, improvise with people a lot. Mm. So you'll even be improvising in, in auditions. And Tom had gone back a number of times. I just happened to go to the Almeida Theatre uh, to watch a brilliant play uh, that Juliet Stevenson was in. And they had the audience kind of in the round. So I was sitting at this side of the stage, away from the auditorium. I had no idea that night that Tom Mackay, who I hadn't seen for about 12 years, happened to be in the audience, but he saw me because uh -huh. I was up because I was near to the stage, you know. And he was like, Silas, I haven't seen him in years, you know. The very next day, he goes in for his final meeting with Cassandra and they're chatting away. And Cassandra said, oh, we've got this, we've got this part. It's not a very big part, but it's a very specific part because it's, it's, it's actually, um, we're not using his real name, but it is right. actually based on a real character. And this guy has to be South American, you know, and, um, and he has to be incredibly kind of suave and have this presence to him. And we've been looking, we haven't found anybody. And Tom goes, well, this is really weird. He said, I saw this guy in the theater last night. Uh, and, and he's got a mercurial kind of look to him, but he could very definitely be Spanish American. Um, you should you should look him up. His name is Silas Carson. So I get this phone call right. direct from Cassandra, and she tells me the story. And I'm like, "Is this? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, have you not gone through my agent?" And she went, "Yeah, I just I wanted to come through to you first. I got your number from Tom. I hope that's okay." And I was like, "Yeah, but is this real?" And she went, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is real. Don't worry. I'll go through your agent to you make it official. Right. But if you're if you've got time to pop in this week." do come and see us. And I was like, great, you know, I'd love to. So they had this scene and basically I just improvised a lot around it. Paul was busy. They were already filming. Right. Uh, so I went and spent the day with Cassandra. She's really lovely. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, she was so entertaining, really relaxed. And, um, and so, you know, I, um, I went there and I, I had done some work on the accent. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very specific accent and um, Dominican Republican mm -hmm. accent. And uh, I did a lot of work on that. And I went there and she said, you know, she said, okay, listen, um, you have to, you know, you have to maintain this accent the whole time. So even when we're talking, we're chatting, maintain the accent because, you know, Paul doesn't really like people to put things on. He wants the original deal, you know, and I was like, okay. So I did this accent throughout the whole interview and then, you know, we improvised and stuff. The next day I get a call. She said, Paul loved your tape. You know, he would love you to come and do this, but you got to keep the accent on set. You know, and I was like, okay, don't let him hear that you're English. And I was like, uh, okay. You know, because you, you hear a lot of stories right. about him. Everybody's got to be in character all of the time, right. you know. 
But Brandon, you've listened to me now for, you know, the whole of this interview. You know that I'm a very straight up guy and, uh, you know, I can play games, but only to a degree, you know. Well, of course, I go along on set and I keep the accent up the whole time. Mm. And uh, and then when we went to the uh, to the premiere mm. in London, I bump into Paul on the stairs. Uh-huh. Of course, I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> of course, I'm chatting in my own voice to him. And, uh, and he's chatting away to me and, and I'm talking in my English voice, you know, about 20 minutes or something. And uh, by that time, he, the, the film had been nominated, you know, for, for a few Oscars, I think it was. And I said to him, you know, and he was going off on the, the next week, I think, to the Oscars. I was like, good luck with the Oscars, mate. I really, I really hope you get that. And he went, oh, so, thanks, Silas. And it's been lovely working with you. And I went, oh. I suddenly went, oh. Oh, I haven't, I haven't been doing the accent. He went, Oh, no, no, that's all notice. He said, I totally knew you are English. <laughs> <laughs> I totally knew that. He said, people think this thing about me where they want me to, you know, be, be a particular thing. I'm not yeah. at all. He said, fine, you know. <laughs> I knew you are English. He said, you did a good job of it. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. He's such an inventive man. Yeah. I mean, you know. The thing about him is he's kind of, you know, he's making stuff up as he goes along. You know, he's got lots and lots of different options. But even when he's behind the camera, he's trying out different things. He's going, let's change this. Let's move this around a bit. Let's, and he's kind of, he's kind of on the hoof. You know, obviously he knows what he's doing. Obviously he's got a whole body of options that he can choose from. But that's where the improvisation comes in. That's where the playing comes in. He plays the stuff all the time because some people come into a set and they know exactly what they want. They've storyboarded it and they're going, right, this is where we're going. With Paul, he's got all of these different options and he's like, I'm not sure where we're going today. Let's let's play around, you know. So even with something like that, I was just on set for a couple of days. Um, there was a lot of playing, a lot of improvisation. He's a genius. I think he's just amazing. Yeah, and I love I love that idea of the improvising because it really does then come across in the movies. And each one is so different and so unique from each other that if you look at yeah. but they're all so uniquely him. So um but anyway, Phantom Thread, one of yeah, my favorite absolutely. movies of the decade, really. So I'm so glad that you popping up. I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like the fact that I'm in Phantom Thread. And the right, Phantom there you Thread. go. A nice, <laughs> a nice bookend right there. Yeah, yeah. But um, that film is so beguiling. It's so beguiling. You don't quite know what it's going to be when it starts, and it ends up being something quite different. And it kind of just draws you in. Yeah, wonderful. To end, we talked a little bit about the the new. David Tennant series. Is there anything else, any upcoming projects that you're excited about or that fans can watch you in um, coming out soon? I know that <laughs> things are crazy in terms of releases. Well, yes, things are crazy at the moment. I mean, at the moment, there's 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 nothing on the table. Uh, I've been doing, one of the parts of our industry that has opened up here is, um, is the voiceover mm-hmm. work. So I've done a few video games recently um, but I am bound by confidentiality contract not to be able to kind of, you know, to talk about that. But sadly, our industry is closed down for now. Um, you know, there are some productions that are, you know, waiting to go. Um, but at the moment, there's still, all the unions are still trying to figure out how do we do this safely. So I know that in America, there are a couple of productions happening. And over here, there are two television productions one of them being EastEnders, the other one I'm not quite sure what it is. And they're, they're working out how they can, you know, kind of have people working in a safe in, environment, which you, know, you can imagine the, the logistics of that. So until those things take off, our industry is still, you know, is, is still asleep, yeah. really. So no projects in, in, the, 
you know, in the pipeline yet. I do have that. Uh, there's a couple of TV programs coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, the one about Dennis Nilsson, which as as yet is still untitled, but there's been a lot of reportage on it, so you can find out about that. And um, and there's another TV program that'll be coming out over here, but it won't be shown in the states. But otherwise, we're just waiting for things to to open up. I'm doing um, I'm doing a fair bit of voiceover work at the moment. And I'm getting into doing audiobooks. So I've created uh-huh. my own home studio and I'm starting to record uh, audiobooks. So at the moment, we're just kind of waiting to see what, what happens. I hope that things, you know, um, open up soon. It's been a t- tough year for everybody. Yeah, it really has. I hope so as well. And again, thank you for coming on. And this is such a huge honor and stay safe. And uh, thank, but you thank, very you, much. thank you. Yeah, thank you very, very much. One of the things that I do think about under these circumstances, which is a great shame, is, is the conventions. People are unable to gather at the moment in, en masse. And, you know, there'll be a lot of Star Wars fans out there listening to this who go to those conventions. And I just want to say to them that I'm sorry for what you're going through. We will meet at some point. It will happen again. However, we there'll be a way. But, uh, but I, I, I miss seeing everybody and I miss meeting, you know, fans and audience. So I hope that side of it picks up soon as well. Yeah, I hope so too. And I hope one day that your path comes back to Dallas and uh, we can yeah. be in person. Uh, but... I have very happy memories of Dallas. I was overwhelmed by Dallas. Really? Yeah. Everything in America compared to England is massive. Right. You know, the roads are really wide and the buildings are really tall and the spaces are huge. And, you know, so I, when I first arrived at Dallas, I was just like in a candy shop walking around going, wow, look at this. You know. <laughs> For better or for worse, yes. Everything in Texas is bigger. Everything is bigger in Texas is the official... But people in Texas, I just found Texans to be really, really uh, genuinely open and kind, friendly, yeah. very friendly people. That's good to hear. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on. What a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, yeah, thank you so much. Take good care. Look after yourself. Thank you again to Mr. Carson for his time, his stories, and his incredible charm. What a fantastic interview, and as I said over and over again, a huge honor. August continues, and I am still giving away a ton of my personal rare signed stuff online, so head to our Twitter and Instagram accounts to see how you can win by just leaving a five-star review this month for the show. Next week, we're talking to production designer of The Rise of Skywalker, the legendary Kev Jenkins. And this Thursday, there might be a small merch announcement, so until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.